part two. So one of the things I want to come back to, though, is your experience. You, you raised the issue of gender, and there's other issues of equity within the research ecosystem about certain communities not having representation, women facing systematic barriers to advancement, people actually not seeing anybody that they can relate to in the research world at all. How do we address those situations? Yeah, it's interesting. There seems to be... I mean, there's a lot more conversation. And I, you know, one of the things I always wonder is how do we take the conversation off social media and into the eating rooms, the classrooms, and the actual institution? Because um, I worry that we talk a lot about, and, you know, I'm going to speak for myself that, you know, as a early career female scientist, I'm sometimes just so busy just trying to do what I need to do to show my quote-unquote value that that almost becomes a secondary. Um, now, fortunately, we do have more mid-career colleagues that are trying to advance that, and there is a push to create allies within our mid- and senior uh, career colleague pools. But, I mean, that's a major societal level issue. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the microcosm of academics is really reflective of the macro ecosystem. And I don't know how to address it other than, I think, recognizing it, actually speaking it, naming it, um, questioning it. I love the no more mammals, um, like that idea, or making sure that we're actually aware that what we're, the position that we're speaking from is only reflective of who's in the room. Um, and asking, asking trainees, asking early career, like who, who do we know that could help give you that perspective? Yes. But in order to do that, we actually have to be very conscious of it and seek, actually conscious of it, acknowledge our own limitation in being able to create that space and then help find other people and be willing to sacrifice our own self-interest mm -hmm. to perhaps raise all boats. Like it's complicated. I'm wondering if you would, you know, reflect back on your graduate education. Were there any sort of structures or possibilities in our PhD training programs to start having this conversation? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think part of when you ask that, I I'm, I struggle to answer, and I think part of it is. PhD programs are usually solo enterprises. Mm -hmm. So you might have a cohort, but everybody's focused on their own program, and you are, um, by strength or folly of your committee and the community that that group might be situated within, we don't actually have those higher-level conversations around what's an academic career, what's a realistic pursuit, um, there was an interesting article, I think it was in the Higher Education Times as well, around the proportion of people who get a PhD thinking they're going to be an academic, tenure track on campus academic, and then the realities of, you know, single digit percentage of people getting those roles. Yes. We're not having those conversations. Um, and then we're not, nor are we giving people tools to actually transition their skills and knowledge into other fields. So I think there's that. Um, it's a very difficult question. I think we're late to coming to the realization and responding to that contraction of the university professor space. 
and trying to think about, and I think we're very good in doctoral programs in training people about methodology and how to ask a clear, answerable question rigorously with good method. But that's not all there is to the life of a scientist, right? So do you want to be a principal investigator? Well, being a principal investigator requires a broad skill set. You have a set of responsibilities for hiring and managing your research team. You have obligations to research ethics boards, to managing budgets. And all of these are equally as important as the research question. And I think right from the time we start training PhDs, we train, and that research question, of course, is all intending towards a publication, right? So everything is geared along this kind of production mode. This is what counts in research, where all of the soft skills, the research ecosystem, the management skills, uh, how you're going to build a sustainable research platform over decades, right? Because once you've committed to a research career, you're looking at 20, 30 years of meaningful, productive work or more. And we don't do anything to psychologically prepare people to build a research platform to make sure that one question leads to the next or that they diversify their skills, that they become co-investigators or collaborators, how they build their research networks. And I think if we started to talk about that at training level, Mm -hmm. and then we also taught people to value these other contributions, I could hold my breath and turn blue. Uh, It'd be a good resuscitation case. But (laughs) until institutions actually change, uh, they're going to be driven by the metrics that are out there because the university rankings are the university rankings. The scientific institute rankings are the scientific institute rankings, and they're based fundamentally on this kind of output model that doesn't calibrate to what this research ecosystem and life cycle vision that Naylor's report articulated, right? The two don't match up with each other. So we make the point that, you know, unlike maybe uh, naturally occurring ecosystems, we've created our own. Um, And we, by series of choices and behaviors, actually reinforce our, our ecosystem. But as you were talking, I wondered, what would happen if we shifted how we actually engaged? Would we attract or retain different people in our pool, in our as, as the organisms? Mm-hmm. Would we see a shift in researchers and the kinds of people who are attracted to our field if we actually shifted the ecosystem? Yes, I think most assuredly because There was a whole piece when we were talking about research ecosystems, like what are the elements or the landscapes uh, that, or the assets within a research ecosystem that support certain kinds of organisms. And, you know, I'm keen on ecology. I write out the Leslie Spit. (laughs) I'm always interested in what flowers are blooming where and what plants are thriving where and which birds and which insects are in particular ecological niches. They're not there randomly. They're there because they're adapting to the circumstances that support their continued existence. So we can actually structure a research ecosystem, and I would love to see what a great experiment, to see what kinds of organisms would flourish in a differently conceptualized and structured research ecosystem. 
So that actually brings to mind the whole discussion that we've had and it's in the literature around people might be by appearance high performing, but they're not flourishing. Yes. And so if we actually convened that group that we've kind of loosely alluded to and actually talked about using Seligman's flourishing framework, like what would the ecosystem look like that actually promotes flourishing? And maybe we need to talk to some of the people who are in the quit lit pool of literature and say, what would bring you back? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're assuming that people leave because they don't want to, they don't want to work in this way or they choose not to, but what would actually bring them back? Yeah. I found the other thing when I stumbled upon the quit lit, that was when I started to feel deeply disturbed about the future academic research, uh, because it's not just in Canada, it's a global phenomenon. And it's hard to imagine people spending the best part of their young adulthood, you know, eight to 10 years to get to the PhD, uh, hoping that there was some sort of future there. They had a vision. Uh, to be that disappointed because there's kind of a formed the quitlet narrative that they were disappointed, ah, but I've been reborn. But boy, that was a hard transition and a difficult, it's a hard way to learn a difficult life lesson. And I don't think we should be creating circumstances where that's the life lesson that a large number of highly intelligent and motivated young people are going to learn. But it's almost, I mean, so it kind of raises the image of Phoenix, right? That these people just kind of burn down and then they rise from the ashes and they go off. But I think we actually have a lot of work to do in our current, our current ecosystem and the, and the organisms that we've got. And I don't know how we would change perspectives and values and opinions, but there, there is a tone in the response to the quit lit around, well, you know, it's a good thing you got out because if you can't hack the pressure, you might as well find somewhere else to be. And so I think what we value, and I even think it has an alignment to, you know, we we endured, so you shall too. Yes. And that has so many resonances with the old model of medical training. You know, suck it up, work for 48 straight hours, don't expect to get any sleep, don't expect to be remunerated. You're going to endure this painful, awful, dehumanizing process. And if you're good enough, you'll survive. But when you think about it, that's a pretty malign way of thinking about training programs. Uh, And we hear about our colleagues who are churning out 40 grant applications in a term, in a scientific um, two-year or three-year term. And they're just, all they do is write grants and grants and grants and grants and papers and then grants. And, you know, we're fortunate that the research environment, I mean, you've created and our our broader research environment is quality product, not quantity, quality, um, and taking the time for well-being. But that's not the norm. And so I think about our colleagues who are working at the mid-career where they came through the early career with no resources and now they don't even have the protection of early career initiatives. Yes. We haven't talked about that, but that whole group of people who are actually now floating, they're in liminal yeah. spaces because they don't have enough historic um, experience or, or success, I'll put that in air quotes, to actually get the senior colleague grant, but they didn't have any of the benefit of the early career, so now they're caught. I mean, what are they going to do? Yeah, there's a big gulf in mid-career that requires its own independent attention. 
So just before we close, what advice would you give to somebody who is thinking about starting a research career in 2019? That's interesting because actually we're just, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of trainees who actually say, what does it take to do this well? Or how do I know if I'm cut out for this? Or, you know, they say, I definitely don't want your life. Like that's, and I think all three of those are very interesting um, opportunities for mentorship and, and sort of feedback. And what I say is it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you choose how you want to work and find a place that supports or allows you to have the match of your values and your products. I mean, you got into a PhD program. So if somebody had belief that you had potential for this trajectory, if you want this type of role, then you need to create, find a community and create the space where you actually are allowed to work the way you want to work. And that may mean that certain places are not appealing to you and other places are very appealing. Um, but your academic career is exactly that. It's the expression of you in a field of inquiry. And so I always tell people, if you know you want to do this, determine why and find the way to do it on your terms. Yeah, I think that's sage advice because then you're not beholden or under the thrall of anybody else. And research should essentially be something that you drive a research career because of your passion and interest. Now, that being said, I think we make the point in the paper as well that, you know, you can't be naive. Yeah. Like you are in an ecosystem and there are other organisms. And so if you're not actually thinking about how you interact in the ecosystem, that's a bit, that's probably a bit of a naive approach, but thinking about this as a career and also thinking about how those career transitions and life course transitions, I mean, I'm thinking about that now. What do I want to be in 20 years? Uh, presumably, I still want to be alive in 20 years. <laughs> I'll be a part of a different ecosystem otherwise. Yeah. So, no, before we quit, though. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you are, by your own admission, sort of coming to the end of. But you are still very young in the academic um, kind of milieu. You have, you know, we have colleagues who are 20 years from now, 20 years from you, still working and actually highly productive. So what does that look like for you? So I made an explicit choice, and I mentioned it in our longer paper, that I will no longer seek to be sole principal investigator on a grant. Um, I'm going to retire from being a solo PI, and I'm going to see my next 20 years as being a service provider to the ecosystem. I love working with juniors. I know my success now will be somebody else's success. So how do I, if you know the students that I've invested my time as being their PhD supervisor, how do I help them get launched as independent scientists and grow in a particular way with a particular set of values? How do I help create environments in the university and in the research institutes that I work in that support an explicit, thoughtful engagement with the research ecosystem? How do we actually nurture and sustain and value and reward? So, you know, it'd be nice if we had a Nobel Prize for mentorship. There are mentorship awards, but they're all like winning in hockey, the Lady Bing for the most gentlemanly player. It's nice to win, but it's not the 
you know, MVP. So until we value some of these ecosystem resources with the same level of reward that we do for the best paper, then we're not uh, in a fully realized sustainable research ecosystem. It's interesting as you say that because it's one of the things that makes people seek particular people as mentors um, or you get suggested, I mean, you get suggested by a lot of people as somebody to talk to um, because you're willing to be generous with your feedback, mentorship ideas, network. It's just, it's this interesting thing about we're, if we don't create system value for the social capital that you have built, the intellectual, scientific, and social capital that you have, um, and are willing to share, then we're actually, we're actually damaging our entire ecosystem by yeah. taking out the apex predator yeah. because we don't think there's a value. It's interesting. I just find this such an interesting discussion. Yes. Yeah, so I don't think there's any harm in investing in generosity and kindness and seeing what kind of results we get from it. We've mm -hmm. known what's happened on the opposite side. <laughs> Zenia and Michelle, thank you. This was a wonderful conversation and we shall have another one, I think, within the next year or so to pick up on some of the threads of our discussions. I look forward to it. Great, thank you. Thank you.